so grateful to be here this evening. I didn't in my wildest dreams ever imagine that I'd be back here. It's, it's almost three years since my last visit. And I consider CIMC to be one of my spiritual homes. I lived here in the beginning years of CIMC. Uh, I lived and worked here um, in 1985 when it all began. At that time, if we had 12 people for a Wednesday night talk, <laughs> it was a hit. <laughs> I, I live in New England, in Northampton, and uh, I consider now uh, you and my other friends in New England to be my community, my family, and I'm back home. It's, really, it's like a dream come true. It's lovely to see so many old friends. But I must confess that wherever I am, a large part of my life a large part of my heart always lies in Africa, where I was born and where I grew up. And there's a tradition there that I spoke a little of in my book that I'd like to retell this evening. Among the tribes in Zululand, where I lived and where I grew up, and in other parts of Africa, there's a tradition that soon after their wedding, the young newlywed wife leaves the hustle and bustle of the village and goes out to a quiet place in the surrounding felt. Perhaps she finds a tree under which she sits or a river beside which she places herself. And there she listens. She listens for the song of her child that has yet to even be conceived. She listens perhaps for the chords, the words, the strain or the melody perhaps of that child. And when it comes to her, and when she knows it well, she returns to the village and she teaches it to her husband. And it's the song that they sing together and the song that accompanies their lovemaking when the child is conceived. It's the song that the midwives sing around the bed of the birthing mother. And it's the song that she sings when she holds it to her breast for the first time when she feeds it perhaps then sung as a lullaby. It's a song that the father sings when he holds the child, when he comes home from work at night, and together they watch the glorious African sunset going down behind the mountains. It's sung in the birthdays of the child, when the child moves into adolescence and puberty, into adulthood. It's sung together with the song of the spouse, on their wedding day, the two songs are sung together. And the final time that the song is sung is at the deathbed of the old man and the old woman. And then for the very last time, when the body is lowered into the grave, the song is then sung finally. It was a misty mountaintop in Zululand in a place called Itopo, where Alan Payton based his novel, Cry the Beloved Country. He called it a land more beautiful than the singing of it. It was there that I met Joseph Goldstein and where I was introduced to the meditation practice in 1980. And for me, the meditation practice has become my way of beginning to remember my own song that was long, long forgotten. 
for me, my song whispers and calls me so strongly to know who I am beyond the self-images, beyond the expectations I have of myself, the expectations that others have of me. Who am I beyond the ideas, and who am I beyond all the labels I carry, beyond Gavin the gay man, Gavin the white South African, Gavin the person living with AIDS, Gavin the certified public accountant, who am I perhaps beyond Gavin the Buddhist meditation teacher, <laughs> or Gavin the author? Who am I beyond the drama and catastrophe of living with AIDS now? I so much wish to live an honest and authentic life that is true to my own song that thank goodness is at long last beginning to emerge from the clouds of forgetfulness that have kept it hidden for so long. And within the melody of my song, I hear the promise of true love, of a real happiness, and of that peace which passeth all understanding, way beyond the ideas that I have about these things. And I feel that in community, in family, us here together tonight, we, we venture out, of course. We go out way perhaps beyond the embrace of our friends and our community. We're kind of like trailblazers. And on our adventuring, of course, we stumble and we fall. We perhaps come flat on our face at times. And we triumph and we soar, we spread our wings. And I feel that it is so important that we come back then to our community again and tell our stories, that we learn from one another as fellow travelers. We listen carefully, we cheer one another on, and hopefully we listen carefully enough that we don't make the same mistakes as those that went before us. So tonight I'm here, I'm back home. I'd like to tell a little of my story. I've certainly stumbled and I've unquestionably come flat on my face many times. And I'm here tonight to report back <laughs> from the front. <laughs> I'm here to sing my song as distinctly as I hear it these days, as I fly as best I can in the face of my own death that seems to whisper to me ever more clearly through the nuances of this crazy and absurd life that I'm living now. I'm giving much love and energy these days to what I hope and pray will someday be a helpful book. This manuscript I've titled Beyond My Wildest Dreams. And tonight I'd like to tell a few of the stories from that manuscript and explore some of the themes of that. Essentially, it's really a celebration of the meditation practice. And it's also a sort of a, a memoir of my spiritual journey and of my own life. And I trust that it will be a careful, accurate, and respectful account of all the ways in which the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, and other teachings 
have blessed and come alive in my life. So far it's full of mischief, many stories and a lot of gratitude. For me, this retelling of my life requires a thorough and deep and candid exploration of my history. It hasn't really been very easy. I understand that when we die, I'm told, that our whole life like flashes before our eyes in a few moments. Well, this project feels just like that. It seems like an opportunity to sort of clear out, let go, unburden, forgive, honor, acknowledge, celebrate. And for me, I really see it as an opportunity to set aside the compelling drama of my history once and for all, to relinquish the story and to move, hopefully, a little more deeply into the intoxicating possibilities of the present moment as I live my life. One of the great joys and blessings of this time of my life has to do with courage and listening. I'm really nervous tonight. <laughs> courage and listening. These days I sense and know to some extent that I am experiencing in my life, certainly with the help of the meditation practice, the possibility of living my days with a sensitivity and alertness that is birthing a courage to listen more deeply and more confidently than ever before, in a place way beyond both the dictates of external authorities and the shoulds of my own fear. It seems as though as if my heart whispers its wisdom and as I come to trust the stirring way beyond the chattering of my mind, I find myself more able to fully move out into the world, maybe even more fully than ever before, trusting that the resources of my heart are always there. And as I look back over my life, as I have been doing, I see and realize that it was in those moments when I was able to say no to the external voices and honor the truth within me, when I refused to sacrifice my spirit to the will of another person or another situation, when I was able to do all of this, these turned out to be the most important and defining and certainly the most mobilizing junctures of my life. It was as if even way back then my heart was able to burst through the confusion to protect me. My first moment of defiance happened when I was 16 years old. I'd been conscripted into the South African army. I was terrified. There was so much anger and violence and malevolence around me in the army camp. And from the start, it was clear that the identified enemy was communist, ever-present, and very black. We were required to kill for and protect the whiteness of our country. I was issued a rifle, 
And every morning I had to oil it, I had to clean it and offer it for inspection. And just the tiniest speck of dust in the, in the barrel cancelled my monthly leave home. Early one morning we were all taken out to the shooting range in camouflage trucks. We were all dressed in battle gear, holding our rifles, and we went deep out into the felt. It felt like war to me. In military formation, we were lined up and issued live ammunition for the first time. And I remember that moment looking down at the glittering bullets, the copper bullets glittering in the African sun. I was so scared. We were ordered to lie flat on the ground and load the ammunition into the magazines of our rifles. We faced a sandy mound ahead of us some distance away. And then all of a sudden the siren went and these targets appeared and I saw before me sort of these concentric circles superimposed was the bullseye upon the chest of the silhouette of a man. And I knew in that moment that I was being schooled in murder. I refused to fire at the target. Instead, I sprayed my bullets wildly all over the place. The sand was like flying up in front of me. All the surrounding targets got bullets, but I wouldn't hit my target. My heart pounded, but I would not, I could not, and I did not shoot. And in front of the other guys, my fellow soldiers, the sergeant major thundered at me in Afrikaans. I don't know if there are any Afrikaans-speaking people here. But he said to me, Is ye a bloody morphy of is ye a man? <laughs> Which was, are you a faggot or are you a man? I, I paid dearly for that defiance, but it was really the first time in my life, as I look back, that I was really truly able to say no. And perhaps one moment of courage, when we allow the wisdom of our hearts to lead the way, conditions further moments of deeper listening. After military service at university in Johannesburg, I and other students rioted and protested against apartheid. And even though we were bludgeoned and tear-gassed, beaten and dragged by our hair, even though we were jailed by police and some of my friends even died in custody, I was able to defy the intimidation and authority of the state again. It was such an important moment for me. For weeks we kept a 24-hour vigil, day and night, beside a busy street, and the cars passed us and went out to the snow-white suburbs that surrounded the city of Johannesburg. A few drivers waved at us and indicated some, some uh, support for us. Most of them ignored us and quite a few hurled things at us and harangued us. It was lonely as we stood there night after night with our placards and our candles flickering in the darkness. One evening a woman stopped and gave us a plate of fresh warm baked pies. We were so excited. This was a very unusual kindness. We were hungry and we were very grateful. And before devouring them a friend suggested that we give thanks. So we gave thanks and we opened the pies and looked at them and there clearly in the moonlight 
twinkled bits of ground glass among the meat in our pies. And I realized in that moment how much they feared our independent spirits, our young independent spirits. It was about the same time that I was able to honor an inner plea when I finally, at long last, admitted to myself that I was gay beyond any shadow of a doubt. I refused to deny my sexuality to myself, to my family or my friends. For me it was triumphant to once more defy deeply within myself those voices that tried to convince me and the voices outside of me that I was deviant, sick, abnormal, amoral, or just going through some sort of phase. And when I first heard the teachings of the Buddha 17 years ago, it was his wild, radical passion for truth and his defiance of external authority that got my own blood boiling and catapulted me on my own spiritual journey. Believe nothing, he said, merely because you have been told it or because it's traditional. Do not believe what your teacher tells you, merely out of respect for your teacher. But by whatever way, through thorough examination, you find to be one leading to good and happiness for all creatures. That path follow like the moon follows the path of the stars. I knew then that his words spoken two and a half thousand years ago were also speaking from my own broken, confused and closed heart then. It really inspired me to set forth on my own journey. He was not telling me what to do. He was not telling me what the truth is and he certainly was not threatening me with damnation, retribution or punishment. He was simply suggesting that I listen, look, and find out the truth for myself. Eight years later, I was diagnosed with AIDS in 1989. I was so grateful that the meditation practice was a part of my life at that point. In that moment, it helped me so much. I was able to fiercely affirm and have been able to continue to do so, that I will not be defined by this illness. I am so much more than a person living with AIDS. AIDS has ultimately no authority over my life. I will know the greatest joy, the greatest love, and the greatest happiness possible. In spite of everything, it still remains my birthright to know that peace which passes all understanding. And yet, in living this affirmation and in honoring my song in my everyday life, grappling with this disease and responding to it with as much care, clarity and fearlessness as possible, Nowhere has my courage, faith, inner authority, intuition, and open-mindedness been more tested than in my relationship 
to watch for me often has felt like the life and death issues of medication, healthcare choices, and options. I'd like to speak a little about these, if I may, for a moment. Over these last eight years, my relationship with medication, nutrition, herbs, and other therapies has been one of the most complicated and fear-ridden parts of the journey. It was not too long ago when I recoiled from the horrific notion of any medication passing my lips. Somehow, in transition to the New Age, I felt a holy allegiance to everything that was natural, organic, holistic, and seemingly correct. <laughs> it, it, was, it was brittle terrain. I wouldn't have been seen dead in Stop and Shop. <laughs> it, I was truly brimful with sanctimony and zealotry and stubbornness. And delivering myself from this landscape has been difficult. It's been hard and it's been so humbling. As drug therapy has slowly, in a limited way, become part of my life, I find myself fearfully at odds with the medication I'm taking. On the one hand, I'm deeply grateful for my access to these medications, and on the other hand, I have resented my decision to take them in the first place. I feel that I failed. I both understand the importance of taking them, and I feel a concurrent reluctance to take them at the same time. So in the end, I'm gaily popping pills I wish to take and wish not to take, that I trust and mistrust, and that I resent and that I'm grateful for. <laughs> and I ask myself, within this firestorm, can a treatment be effective given the ambivalence of my mind? Can a pull administered in fear truly herald the healing that I'm praying for? Is the violence, panic, and confusion more damaging than the benefits I might be getting from the drug in the first place? And then I have another whole array of self-torturing thoughts. I'm sure none of you have these, but I'm going to share them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Am I perhaps allergic to this drug? Is my dosage too high or is it too low? Are the supplements adversely affecting one another? Are they interacting with one another? Should I stop this one or should I stop that one? Should I believe this article, this trial, this study, or that one over there? And which herbalist, nutritionist, acupuncturist, chiropractor, doctor, nurse really understands me better? <laughs> On my knees, I have prayed for deliverance from this madness from the wild fear bubbling up from my gut where, ironically, all the pills, captures, tinctures, powders, drugs enter my body in the first place. What a dreadful, sorry, laughable mess this is. <laughs> and it has been the consolidation of inner courage, the blessing of a deeper capacity to listen, and the defiant re-establishment of inner ultimate authority, 
all I feel blessings of the meditation practice that have delivered me from this terrifying landscape. Not totally, but the deliverance is certainly underway. With meditation, there has come a deeper sensitivity to the needs of my body and the whispering of my heart. Hearing more clearly these shifting energies, I'm better able to listen to a wisdom I do believe was always there, only hidden probably by the chaos and confusion of my unbridled fear. So what I decided to do was this. I decided to stop everything. I decided to stop all the vitamins, all the drugs, all the therapies. I then slowly, in a very measured, mindful and careful way, began reintroducing a new regimen. And I've learned so much in this project. With awareness and mercy, I saw so clearly the fear and aversion accompanying the administration of certain pills, capsules and powders. There was this instinctual resistance and closing that I felt inside of me. And so I decided to just stop taking those drugs. So I stopped. I felt the ease, the gratitude, and the wholeheartedness that accompanied others. And of course, I continued those ones. And then I saw that some bodywork options I'd been doing had behind them a motivation to ameliorate health situations that I projected may perhaps happen sometime in the future. And I stopped those ones also. And over the months, I listened and questioned everything. It was a terrifying journey. A lot of my healthcare providers were very concerned and very perturbed, but it felt like the kindest thing I could have done for myself. I was no longer going to have this inner warfare and turmoil tearing me apart. I listened carefully and began afresh. This courage to listen and affirm an inner sense of things has borne rich fruit. I sense that these days anything received into or by my body in love with trust and gratitude and wholeheartedness heralds the potential for healing I pray so deeply for every day. And I believe that a pill for me taken in fear with aversion and in chaos is unlikely to do much good anyway, no matter how expensive or, and organic it might be. Where I place my faith and heart, I believe will bring the greatest likelihood of healing for me. I would like to briefly, if I may, step out of the storytelling for a moment and speak inclusively for a short while. This, this comes so much out of the experience of the last two years, not being able to be here and not thinking I'd ever be able to return again. I'm nervous, but I'm really happy to be here. 
I believe that deep down in places we are all, we are barely aware of, there is for all of us an abiding yearning for connection, for union and for oneness with each other and with all of life. This thirst for an experience of connection, I believe births so often the passion, courage and effort necessary to begin and to continue the spiritual journey. Increasingly I sense that the spiritual journey is a return to an experience of love and connection that was always there, hidden, perhaps denied, avoided, but never ever in the end eradicated. I feel I am remembering in my life a love long forgotten. And this love doesn't feel personal, but rather common, shared, everywhere, indivisible, unselfish and without condition. And when I forget this unity, this common love, then I separate myself in fear. I feel abandoned, alone, marginalized, suspicious, very isolated, and a terrible victim of my circumstances. Perhaps we tonight here in community can choose and challenge ourselves to walk upon sacred ground together, here, now. We can create, I ask, a place where our hearts and minds can be joined way beyond the ludicrous notion that we are ultimately isolated, separate, disconnected, and alone. In this sacred land, when one person is hungry, we are all starving souls. When someone is oppressed, we are all violated. When a woman is imprisoned, we all are in jail with her. When a man is laid off work or humiliated and ostracized, we share his pain immediately. And when a person is diseased, we are all infected. No one is immune. We are all sick. We can think it's not our problem. We can convince ourselves that he or she deserves his or her lot. We can derive cold comfort from our indifference. But in truth, one suffering soul anywhere, I believe, tears each of our hearts apart. We are all a strand of that great web of interconnection out of which none of us could ever fall, ever. We only think we can. We're not alone. We bleed together. We cry together. We rejoice together. We are infected together. And we heal hand in hand, undivided, together always. I invite you to take a step into this take the sacred territory with me now, tonight, and others. Take my hand and side by side join me upon what appears to be my terrain. Share my story, my landscape for a few moments if you will. We are in this together on the sacred ground now. No one is immune. We all 
have AIDS. You may wish to close your eyes for a while as we stroll together. I invite you to do this. Of course, those of you who choose to pass make it safe for all of us here to continue, and we thank you for that. It takes, of course, as much courage to say no as it does to do otherwise. The ground we tread today is very different, a far cry from the territory we and others crossed in years gone by. The pervasive hopelessness of our history of living with AIDS is replaced today with a surge of hope that this virus which attempts to destroy our lives may at last be laid to rest or slowed down in some way. Word of new generations of possibilities catapult us somewhat beyond the familiar gridlock of despair to a place of very tentative and cautious hope and possibility. A glimmer of soft light reaches down to our collective broken hearts and tantalizes us with the possibility that our dire anticipations and projections might be tempered by advances in response to this tricky virus that lives within all of us now. Yet, perhaps, you, like me, feel a far cry from solid ground. The way ahead may seem a fraction lighter, but I feel caution and still afraid. Some of us may benefit from advances in therapy, others may not be so fortunate. We don't know the rocky ground that lies ahead. Some of us may decide to resist new therapies. Others may try and then have to make a terrifying and heartbreaking decision to discontinue. These drugs may be ineffective, the side effects are too onerous, or we have a biochemical cross-resistance to them from choices we made before always remembering these are life and death decisions. Our choices have huge consequences. And all the facts are just not known. We've been hopeful before and crushingly disappointed. We have felt well, perhaps healed and inviolable, and then slumped back the next day into the wild world of physical and emotional pain that so many of us know so well. There goes the carpet from under our feet once more. How do we hold all of this in our old and weathered hearts? How do we look ahead with a measure of hope without being crippled by the cynicism and dark weight of history? How do we reach beyond our rage and grief for loved ones who are not with us today and still direction ourselves towards a hope that was denied them when they grappled with the same disease we do now, together? How do we embrace the possibilities of this time without ignoring the wisdom of our wild hearts? And do we think the unthinkable might we live to a ripe old age? Might we see our sons and daughters grow up to bear us grandchildren?
Might we breathe the air of a new millennium? Might we know our next birthday? Next summer, the next fall? And may we perhaps even know another glorious spring like the one that embraces and surrounds us today? Might we know a world saturated with peace, care, and love where war and conflict, selfishness, and inhumanity are an aberration of years gone by. Do we admit these possibilities into our shattered hearts? Or do we protect ourselves from hoping too much? Do we trust and know faith when we've been hurt and suffered so long? Is our woundedness now too familiar and comfortable of a place, one we trust more than the possibility of a new one now. We brothers and sisters, elders of this fire, know better than most human beings that we live in a fragile world, AIDS or no AIDS. We know that life, breath, wellness, hope, joy, pain are all in the end transitory, undependable, and changing. And in the end, the fire of our passage stirs us to the great mystery of life. With courage and strength, listening deeply, hand in hand, we set foot together on that succulent ground where we ask the ancient questions. Who am I? Who is it that dies? What is secure? Why this fear, rage, guilt, and confusion? What is faith? Where is love, joy, kindness? Where is my song? And so we journey together to the heart of life. We admit to every cell of our being the inherent insecurity of all we valued, treasured, and coveted. Here nothing is dependable, reliable, or stable. In this sacred place, we stand together naked, vulnerable, courageous, and we come finally <clears throat> face to face with death and all the fear that rages there. In our willingness to face this truth of our mortality, it is my experience that blessedly, thankfully, and miraculously we unleash an alchemy of the heart which births all the peace, ease, and contentment that we always yearned for. The irony is manifest. What we feared most holds the key to our birthright which has eluded us for so long. Coming face to face, with death, must birth us into a fullness of life unfettered by the thirst for a security 
and certainty that was an impossibility right from the beginning. So finally, in the end, the joke seems to be on us. In collusion with the fear of our death, we paint a nightmare in our mind and recoil in terror from our handiwork. While all the time behind and beyond the illusion, ironically, is the promise of all the blessings we've prayed so hard for. I know today in my life a degree of contentment, ease, equanimity, quiet joy and peace in life that far exceeds my wildest dreams of what I ever thought could be possible for me. With or without the experience of this disease in my life now, this is unquestionably what's true. And while my life may seem like the designated tragedy and the identified catastrophe, the big joke really is that we're all, in the end, in the same boat. It's just that some of us feel the rocking of the waves a little more distinctly than the rest of us. A few years ago, actually it was three years ago, just shortly after my book was published, I was admitted to hospital in Northampton. My temperature was 106.7 degrees. I had uh, pneumonia and my friends and doctors all thought that I was checking out, or at the very least I would suffer some sort of irreparable brain damage, which apparently happens when your fever gets that high. I dropped 25 pounds, I was drenched in sweats day and night, and my mind was really dull and I was absolutely exhausted. And in the middle of all of this, one night, I awoke from this nightmare with a jolt and my mind was crystal clear, crisp and alert, and surrounding me in every direction was a deep, comforting, velvet blackness. It, it, it had great depth and no depth at all. And below me and stretching way ahead to a pinpoint in the distance was a river of salmon apricot colored rose petals. The petals shimmered and glowed in contrast with the deep black all around me. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and I can never forget it. I was sitting cross-legged, of course, <laughs> but I was, <laughs> uh, a, f a fraction ab above the river, and I silently and effortlessly skimmed the surface as I slowly moved ahead. And at the point where the river disappeared far, far in the distance, a bright white light shone back towards me. And the closer I approached this light, the stronger I felt the impact of it. The white, the white light embraced me with an experience of limitless, full, and absolute, unconditional love, quite unlike anything I'd experienced in this life before. And the closer I got to this light, the deeper the sense of coming home. I felt absolutely bathed and saturated and infused with this light. The feeling of safety and protection 
embraced me as the light reached out to me and as I moved towards it. My heart really erupted with this great joy as I remembered this love, this great love. Somehow I'd forgotten it, but I knew it. I knew it. It was old and it was familiar. At this point, my mind got really busy. <laughs> this is far out, I remember. <laughs> this, this is so cool. It's like, it's like I'm dying. It's all so beautiful. I remember this love. I'm on my way home. I haven't really suffered all that much. And I remember feeling a glimmer of sort of self-satisfaction, you know? I mean, this must be the rewards of all those meditations, all those IMS retreats, you know? <laughs> and it was like instantly I did a 90-degree turn, and I went straight into the blackness to the right. And my eyes opened, and I was back in the hospital bed, and all those darn nurses were around me. And there was life support system all around, and there was clearly been some panic. And my fever broke, and the crisis was over. But my overwhelming memory of that night, far more than the vividness of the visual of it, was of the loving light. I have no idea, really, what happened. But what I'm left with is an unshakable knowing that the movement towards death for me, and I speak personally here, of course, the movement towards death is a movement to a profound and boundless love, long forgotten. At any time, I'm able to evoke the joy, relief, and gladness I felt that night in hospital. More, more than ever, death feels like a short step, really, from one garden to another, just a return to a love that was long forgotten. And particularly since that night, what increasingly defines my life these days is an unquenchable thirst to know the deepest and most unconditional love possible within the fire and the complexity and the drama of my life now. I believe it is my birthright to know this love expressed both within me and outside of me, along with and not defined by the circumstances in which I live. These days, the lens through which I experience my life is steadily shifting from darkness into light as I begin to remember the strains of my song and its melody so much more clearly now. The words of that song reminds me that who I am fundamentally is simply a great and pure love that I long forgot. And my song reminds me to remember this constantly. That it has always been there, that it's been hidden, denied, swamped by the circumstances by my life at times, smothered by fear and confusion, but blessedly ready always to return to the light of day. Gone is what feels to me to be the absurd notion that this love needs to be found outside of myself, that it needs to be madly cultivated or accumulated. My song was simply always there. I just forgot. And now 
I'm beginning to remember again. And for me, certainly, the highest expression of love is awareness. I've actually got some water somewhere. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. For me, the highest expression of love is awareness. To be fully present with oneself and another is for me the truest love there is. And for me, the practice of meditation, the practice of mindfulness is essentially a practice of love. Unconscious love, I feel, is an impossibility. It's an oxymoron. It just cannot be. To be aware is to love. We forget and we remember. For me, meditation, in the end, is about becoming more sensitive and more loving. The reverberations these days of a careless word or an incautious action, an unloving thought, seem now too painful to ignore. And this deepening sensitivity begins to calibrate for me an ever more kind and loving path in life expressed both inwardly and outwardly now in the world. It feels as though love has blossomed into a great kindness in my life, in spite of everything. I today live with considerable chronic physical pain. According to medical thinking, my neurological system has been severely compromised by this experience of living with AIDS, particularly in my feet. The nerves, as I understand, have been unsheathed. They are unprotected. And so it feels like there are these exposed electrical wires that sort of touch one another. It's very painful. It's constant. It's ever-present, and it's day and night. And for me, sleep is rare now. In the last year or so, I've rattled gloriously with an array of sleeping tablets and painkillers and uh, sedatives and other drugs. I've tried them all. If anyone (laughs) wants to know anything about them, I'm your guy. (laughs) And nothing has provided sleep. So as you can imagine, this has brought its own arsenal of fears and anger and frustration and exhaustion. I feel so often these days that I'm running down corridors that have offered me some solace and comfort in the past and that each time now I head down a familiar corridor, I hit a wall and I just come back. And within this firestorm, the thought of burdening myself further with even a modicum of inner intolerance, unkindness, cruelty and self-judgment has become a completely unacceptable (coughs) option anymore. I am so grateful that at long last, after all these years, I can say to you tonight, my community, my family, that the inner crucifixion, the self-judgment, the violence, the conflict that has raged within me all my life 
is definitely on its way out. I live these days with an immense inner affection and kindness that cheers me on in spite of the fire of this time, no longer crucified by self-mortification and self-criticism, I rest in the assurance that circumstances, although difficult, are no longer exacerbated by the inner harshness that once raged inside of me. I used to treat myself as I would never treat another person. And now today, at long last, finally, it feels as though I'm falling head over heels in love with myself. <laughs> this kindness spills over into many facets of my life, and I find myself negotiating the challenges of my circumstances with a malleability and an ease that is intoxicating and wondrous to me, and a great blessing. The experience of this affection fuels my resolve to hear more deeply than ever the words, the strain, the song of my own song. It's taken so much to get to this juncture of my life. It's been very humbling. I feel as though I've been yanked and taken by the scruff of my neck by this disease and kicking and screaming being forced by my circumstances to finally, at last, be a lot kinder and nicer to myself. I'd like to share with you, in closing, some of the lessons I've learned, all commonplace, all ordinary, and down-to-earth, that hopefully you perhaps might circumvent some of the heartbreaking absurdity that has that is defined my own return to a place of inner affection, kindness, and care in which I do hold myself these days. It's usually in the middle of, <clears throat> of a long, sleepless night that I am most frustrated and fearful of the pain, discomfort, and exhaustion of this time. Often on my knees, praying for clarity, I ask, where is my song in this? Where is the love in this fire? And then, yet again, I remember that the kindest and most loving response in the middle of the night is to just let it be not pretend that it's any different, not keep myself busy as a way to ignore what's going on, not distract myself or speed up in any way, and certainly not judge myself or perhaps be ashamed that I'm not handling the situation in a more saint-like way. Meditation really helps me respond and not react to what's happening. I also try and have a, a sense of humor about it. These days, if people call me up and ask me how I'm doing, I usually say something like, well, you know, the meditation teacher is having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the meditation teacher's on antidepressants these days. 
uh, a further kindness is an ongoing resolve to question my allegiance to the notion that short of eight good hours of sleep a night, I'll surely perish, get sick, or disintegrate in some way. I've always been terrified of not sleeping, fearful of feeling tired and exhausted, and disgusted when I appear looking haggard and drawn. I know none of this happens to you people, so I just thought I'd give you a little glimpse into my crazy mind. But slowly and gradually, I kindly slip into a deepening acceptance that even sleep is a blessing I can both welcome when it is offered and surrender gently when it is not possible. Gifting myself with a permission to accept sleeplessness without struggle is for me an immense kindness and a huge blessing. And then the whole issue of food is so complicated for me at times. These days I eat almost every meal on my own by choice. This is new for me. Without conversation or the newspaper, the a book, magazine, telephone, television, I light a candle and settle down to a mindful meal alone. This is a further great kindness of this time. My gastrointestinal system has been compromised by this virus, and imbalances in my neurological system exacerbate the indigestion. And when fear arises, as I said earlier, it emanates from my gut, and my gut contracts, and so my abdominal area is under considerable strain for a number of reasons these days. So by mindfully eating and chewing and tasting without distraction, I feel that I'm responding to this situation with a kindness and a love that makes a huge difference. I simply tell my friends that I prefer to eat alone these days. And it's true, and I do this mindfully, and I do it with joy. Food. And then another area has to do with my sexuality. It would be so easy for me to allow this disease to define my life. This journey calls for so much time, care, attention, patience, resolve. It would be understandable that AIDS could become the lens through which I relate to life, through which I relate to myself, and the way in which I encourage others to relate to me. And perhaps in relationship to my sexuality, this definition is most perilous. Last year, blessedly and triumphantly, I was able to reclaim my sexuality a little more deeply from both the grip of my history of sexual violence as well as the tenacity of my fear and shame and self-consciousness about living with AIDS. For me, it was with great kindness and courage that I aligned myself with a prayer and a stirring to explore a sexual relationship after eight years of celibacy since my diagnosis. 
I met and fell in love with one of the most wonderful men I have ever known. And during our lovemaking one afternoon together, I was shattered to realize that for the first time in my life ever, I was making love being fully sexually alive, awake, and present without a whisper of fear. There was no self-consciousness, there was no vigilance, there was no tentativeness, purely a wholehearted surrender and trust in an expression that all my life, an expression of myself all my life, that has felt so complicated, anxious, and a world apart from the ease I felt in that blessed time together. And to my great surprise and gratitude, I realized that the miracle of fearlessness, love, and kindness, so alive in other parts of my life these days, had now spilt over blessedly into this most complicated and wounded facet of my life also. This felt like an immense blessing and kindness to me. Another game I play these days, I'd like to share this with you in closing, is to lift myself lovingly out of the realm of the relative and plonk myself instead into the heady landscape of the absolute, where every possibility is alive and where all miracles happen. I get so exhausted with all the tests the numbers, the medical decisions. I feel so weary with all the prophylaxis and their caution. I'm impatient with all the ways in which I still feel separate, unforgiving, and unkind. And I'm sick and tired of words like incurable, irrevocable, irreversible, unimaginable, impossible. I am deathly tired of postponing joy and of projecting the possibility of peace into the rosy glow of some enlightened future. And so here too, within the gridlock of this constriction and contraction, I gift myself with a wholehearted, loving, kind permission to soar to that absolute perspective where anything and everything is possible, where each moment is brimful with potential, miracle, and mystery, where I know that I am not separate for one moment ever, where forgiveness of another is truly a forgiveness of myself, where, for lo where love for another is truly love expressed to myself also, and where acceptance of another is a wholehearted acceptance of myself at the same time, where I see the face of Christ, the Buddha, Kuan Yin, in every person that I meet, and where I hear their voices in every word that is spoken to me. On this sacred ground, this immeasurably kind terrain, I at last finally kindly admit to myself, 
to my world, to God, if you will, I don't know what anything means, including this, my dance with life. Therefore, I don't know how to respond to this. I don't have a clue in the end. I will not drag the past into the present to be the light that guides me now. I surrender everything. I end my desperate choreography. I relinquish my laughable attempt to control and order my life. I place this whole catastrophe in God's hands and I slip quietly, mercifully and blessedly back into the one great original mind, the Buddha mind, the beginner's mind, the Christ mind, the mind of the child, where I stop forgetting completely and remember once and for all and for all time the song that was always there from the very beginning. If a glass of clear, pure, unpolluted water were a cure for AIDS, nevertheless millions and millions of men and women in Africa would nevertheless die from this disease. In Africa they often don't even have an aspirin to medicate the pain. There are entire villages that have been wiped from the face of this earth by AIDS and ancient cultures are being lost forever to this disease. We have so much over here and they have so little next to nothing. I'd like to ask you in closing if you would please remember our brothers and sisters in Africa who are living with this disease. So the time is a quarter to nine and I'm happy to hang out. Um, but of course I invite anybody to of course leave at any time that is necessary. Well, I certainly welcome any discussion that needs to happen, any fun we need to have. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how your writing is coming and if your relationship with writing changes. Um, well, it's humbling because this is my third attempt at a manuscript. The first two just um, didn't feel right, so they, they didn't go anywhere. So, you know, I was so lucky the first time, you know, and. I just, uh, so I'm trying again, you know, I'm trying again. And um, hopefully, third time lucky. I love it. I, I, I love writing, but this particular project is not easy. It, it's required me to go back to parts of my life with a sort of thoroughness that, you know, like in the meditation, as you know, it, you know, it's not about going back to the story. It's about acknowledging it 
and dealing with that elsewhere, but in writing about it, I've had to go back and really saturate myself in the experience of something that happened a long time ago, so that I'm able to bring it alive. And so it's evoked a, a, a storm of, of feeling, and so I've actually had to do it and pull back, do it and pull back, do it and pull back. But I'm about halfway through, I think. I, I think. You never know. It has a life of its own. Have other sprouts come out, like poetry or short stories or anything like that? Well, I write a lot, you know, and, um, you, know, I, you know, I write some poetry and I haven't written any short stories. Mostly, um, there's just a it feels like one of the ways of birthing the experience of this time is in the writing. It seems like it's a, you know, it's a very cathartic, it's a flow that happens very easily for me. And I sometimes wish I had some schooling in it. I mean, I hated writing at school. I hated literature. Grammar was like the worst thing in the world for me, you know. So to my surprise, I'm doing this, you know. What? Oh, um, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I feel like, you know, there are so many wonderful meditation teachers out there with enormous experience where I feel like maybe the best way I can serve is just to affirm that this is a practice that really, really works. You know, I mean, I was infected uh, 17 years ago. I know when I was infected because I had another period of celibacy when I was a monk and doing long-term practice. So all the time that I was a monk and at IMS and doing all this intensive practice, the virus of my body were already locked in a battle with each other. You know, we now know that when you're infected, it starts right then, even though it doesn't become symptomatic. So, you know, it, it, it was on a level happening right from the very beginning. And it was only, of course, when I was diagnosed that it really informed the practice. But what I discovered was that those eight or nine years of sitting before the diagnosis, even though I was dealing with the virus and didn't know it, um, really helped me and gave me choices that I believe have made a world of difference because I've lost over 50 friends now to this virus and I've seen so many different configurations of the unfolding and I feel very blessed that meditation was there as a way that helped, has helped me and does help me. And so I want to celebrate it and I want to, you know, I just want to serve, you know, in a way, to, you know, inspire hopefully people to uh, to through the meditation practice just value what a precious gift it is to be alive and to have the opportunity to look deeply into love you know that's what I want most to do and so that simply feels like m my calling now and that's why I'm here tonight you know Could you check your
tonight's lucky thing brought you from inner turmoil to the ability to be kindness to yourself? Well, um, the question is, what brought me from the inner turmoil to the kindness? You know, I think a part of it, as I said this evening, was that this experience of living with this disease is so painful in so many ways, not only physically, but just, you know, having the carpet pulled out from underneath me and just feeling the disintegration of what's felt like my idea of my life in pieces around me and feeling the heartbreaking sadness of that, that it just stirred in me a resolve that I can't add more to this than is already there. I mean, it's just so bad. The tragedy is that it took me, it took so much to get me to the place where I really now am beginning to live with this knowing that I'm not going to relinquish self-reference anymore, that I'm going to take the very best care of myself. And it, it, it just, it, it's an intoxicating experience for me, that I won't surrender myself any longer. And ironically, what that means is that I'm a much nicer person in the world too, you know, you know. But um, maybe that's another reason why, you know, I feel very grateful for the opportunity, you know, to be here tonight and to do this sort of thing is just hopefully I can inspire people not to have to wait until something like this happens before they're making changes, because I, I don't believe that everybody has to have some catastrophic event in their life in order to, to, to hear their song, you know? Yeah. Um, do you feel a kind of tension between um, wanting to, in a sense, struggle with the disease and and heal yourself how, however you can and accepting what happens with equanimity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll tell you a secret. The deepest parts of me whisper to me these days that if healing is possible, physical healing is possible, that that healing will come out of the inner reconciliation and the consolidation of love that I believe is the birthright of all of us. And that I can, admit, you know, I can do all the, all the drugs and all the therapies and the acupuncture and, and everything, and I do that hopefully with more love than was possible before, but in the end I think that what is going to be most healing is, you know, is addressing the areas where there still is a deficiency of some sort of love. That love for me feels like the best medicine available. And that, you know, if I take a drug like whatever, and I take it with love, then in a way I'm administering love to myself anyway. And, you know, I feel like I've bought some time. I mean, last winter I was terribly ill again, and I really thought that I was, I, was, I was checking out. And I was like 35 pounds lighter than I am today. And um, I, w I had to go on to drug therapy. All the blood tests 
you know, were wild. You know, I mean, it, I was a candidate, you know, for th- three, four months to live. And so, kicking and shouting, I started drugs, you know. And I feel like they did help. Immediately, there, there, was, there, there was a response. I translate that for me as being an opportunity to do more time to do the healing, you know. I would love to live to, to a ripe old age. And I doubt that if I'd lived my life as I was before this disease, whether I would have known the happiness I'm experiencing now, even if I'd lived to 90. I, I really mean that, you know. And I'm so humbled by that, you know. Hi. I, I'd like to share something with you. Uh, about nine months ago, I, uh, I went into a treatment center. I'm in recovery from drugs and alcohol, and, um, and I'm also suffering from the virus. And um, your book, there's a friend of mine in this room, was the first one that I read. I was uh, very lost, very clueless. I was homeless. And um, it, it, it was dramatically changing my life from even this short nine months. I'm very much a beginner at all of this, but uh, I've been waiting for you to come ever since I figured out this <laughs> I even went away to uh, make a reconciliation with my children, which I ran out on 15 years ago, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I made sure I got back for this. Um, I, I just, uh, I'm very nervous speaking right here, and uh, you don't know how much that that book meant to me. Was, uh, you know, I had nothing, absolutely nothing. I had no spirit. I had nothing at all left. And, uh, and uh, my life consisted of ambulance rides and overdoses and high fevers and neuropathy and so on and so forth. And since I feel something has happened to me that I am, uh, if, you, if people in recovery would know that the first year of recovery is supposed to be the hardest, it has absolutely been the happiest year of my life. Uh-huh. And, um, and neuropathy and the virus has completely turned around to the dismay of the medical people. Uh, that was <laughs> because a diet of, of, of food instead of cocaine and heroin and alcohol might have helped a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was kind of curious. I'm supposed to go back for some more results. My viral load is now undetectable. You know what the new viral load test, right? As um, with uh, with no drugs. And, uh, which is pretty astounding, and uh, and I'm wondering, like, if it changes, did you choose to take those protease inhibitors in the cocktails and, and that trick, and that, you know what I mean? Uh, if I was the drug that you took, or do you no, want to share that? No, 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 I'm not on the protease inhibitor. Uh, did you, did, were those the ones that you did take? No, uh, okay. no. And you suggest not taking Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, you know, I, you know, I refuse, yeah, I mean, that's what I was, you know, saying. It's like, you know, these are such life and death decisions because, you know, I have friends who took AZT. You know, I have a friend who was diagnosed a month before me. He went on to AZT immediately and has since gone with every new drug as it's come out. Now, when he wanted to start the protease inhibitor, he found that he didn't have enough drugs that he wasn't resistant to in order to create the cocktail that would enable him to, to use a protease inhibitor. So he's exhausted his possibilities. Now, I'm not saying I made the right decision, he made the wrong decision. 
it's just like these are such life and death decisions. So where do we go to make these decisions? And that's where I feel the meditation practice has helped me. It's, you know, it's helped me look in a balanced way at the whole picture and make a decision I can live with irrespective of what the consequences are. And for me so far, you know, if my back was completely up against the wall and my viral load was at a place where I felt like I really needed to address it, I might do a protease inhibitor. My doctor really wants me to. But so far, there's just a stirring. But that's not a blanket statement against them. I mean, clearly, they've been a miracle for a lot of people. So the last thing I would do is suggest not taking them. I would suggest just having a mind that, that grappled with the question that was as clear and as balanced and as loving and as open as possible and as unprejudiced. You know, like in my case, I was so prejudiced. I was such a child of the new age that, you know, my friends were begging me to take aspirins, you know, when I had a fever, you know, and it was like, no, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's so humbling, you know. I, I think I'm very much in denial after listening to you tonight. Denial is a good thing. <laughs> well, I don't think you're in denial. I don't think you're in denial. I mean, I mean, I don't say I'm an authority on that. But from what from what you've said to me, it certainly doesn't sound to me as though you're hiding behind an awful lot. And I salute you. Yeah. Was somebody over there that had a question? No.
you talked a little bit about the joy of romantic love that you experienced last year, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the love that you're finding in sort of the simplicity of day-to-day -day life and interactions or experiences. Well, you know, the intersection of love and awareness has been the real intoxication of the last years of, you know, I've always had something of a separation somewhere in, in my head about love and awareness and the meditation practice here and love there or, you know, mindfulness and loving kindness and them coming together truly as one in the experience of life has brought me just into a kind of loveliness with, you know, it's like the thought of doing anything in an unloving way just feels so uncomfortable now. It's almost like that is the correction. And then there's just a surrendering back into, into an experiencing of, of more and more of my life just with the feeling of this, uh, you know, of this loveliness, you know. And, you know, I don't want it to sound sort of ethereal and sort of new age. It actually feels so true it feels so sound and grounded and, and 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 filled with succulence and possibility you know a friend of mine said to me a while ago trudy i guess some of you know trudy goodman she said to me oh i think you should go and do a retreat you know you should go and do a meta retreat at ims with michelle when she's here and it was like i thought huh you know, I really don't want to do that. You know, I mean, I feel like at this point in my life, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with retreating. I'm a great believer in retreats. But it just feels like, it's like I'm doing that now. You know, and uh, it just feels like we'd be a contrivance at the moment. And I'm not saying that I'm great and anybody that, is going is not great. I'm just saying that's where it is now for me. And honoring that feels really important. So, you know, I'm just trying to, to allow this to spill into everything, you know, and, you know, um, being sexually alive with that same kind of love is totally intoxicating. Because, you, you know, as I've spoken here before, my history of sexual abuse has rendered that part of my life extremely complicated, and I've grappled with it so much over the years in different ways. And to, and to find that th the same delight that I have playing with my cat can, you know, can actually be there making love to another human being was just, it was amazing. I mean, it was a moment of such deepening of faith in the journey, in the remembering, in the Dharma, in everything. It, w it was, an, it was an, uh, an incredible thing for me. Yeah. yeah well, firstly, thank you for a very moving talk. And secondly, I was wondering how you work with depression in the context of painful memories. I guess I hear a lot from meditation teachers, don't pay attention to the content, don't listen to personal history, but return to the object of concentration. But sometimes, you know, they're sort of obsessive and ruminative thoughts. It's hard to get out from under them, and I know it's something you've struggled with. 
Yeah. Well, the way I work with it on re- retreats, and I think a lot depends on the people that you work with and, you know, the particular form of meditation that you're doing. But at the time when I was um, accessing a lot of really shocking memories, the way I worked with it on retreat was that my teachers, it was almost like they opened their arms and took the story from me. So I would come, I would tell them, they would take it almost and put it down and hold it so that I could go back to the bare experience of these terrifying emotions and feelings and begin to understand what it means to find balance with that degree of fear and terror and anger and rage. And it was like at the end of the retreat, I went back and said, okay, Michelle, let me take the story, the catastrophe, and then I took it to therapy, you know, and then I grappled with it in therapy. And so for me, you know, this rigid sort of slice that meditation is about, is about feelings and therapy is about story and, you know, there's nothing in the, the two, hasn't been my experience. To, to me, the challenge has been to find a way to make the whole thing workable. And so, you know, the meditation practice always has been a way that has served the therapy, and the therapy has been a way that has served the meditation, because as I grapple with the story and find my peace with it and deal with it in whatever way I do in therapy, it frees me up to go deeper in the meditation, because I'm not gridlocked in a tangle and in a complication with the storyline. But then, in the, you know, in the meditation, I also know that at certain junctures, it would be the most unskillful thing for me to have pursued the meditation too zealously because it was really time for me to engage the story. And so it's having a sort of a, an elegance between the two of them and be, being able to find what's appropriate now and what's appropriate then. And always remembering that the mindfulness, which is the essence of the meditation practice, is of course always potentially very alive in the therapy too. So it's not as if there's that division either. So um, I've always been a little wary, personally, you know, of a situation where I've been told to snap out of the storyline. You know, I, I feel like, like, for me that feels, has been a little harsh, and that's not to discredit that way of dealing with it, but my own psychology, my own nature, it's it's felt like a a truer way to find a loving balance that honors both. Should we go for another few minutes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Believe nothing merely because you have been told it, or because it is traditional, or because you yourself imagined it. Do not believe what your teacher tells you merely out of respect for your teacher, but by whatever way through examination you find to be one leading to good and happiness for all creatures. That path 
follow like the moon follows the path of the stars. It's great, isn't it? Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.